Uh, this is Lindsay Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week Interview Podcast on Friday, September the 1st, sponsored by 42 at the Clinton Center. On today's edition, we're going to talk about Arkansas's new concealed carry law, a threat to DACA, and juvenile justice in Arkansas. I'm joined by Benjamin Hardy. Hello. Spe- I'm back. Special guest. Special. Former Arkansas Times reporter and uh, current freelancer. <laughs> Uh-huh. Man about town. Yeah, that's what my card says. Expert on many things. So, Benji, let's talk about the new enhanced carry law that went into effect today. There's some confusion. We're going to try to allay that. Sure. So, nothing happened today, <laughs> uh, in, in, in effect other than a date on a piece of paper, um, which was the bill itself. I mean... This is the bill that uh, attracted so much controversy during the session, uh, went through numerous iterations, appeared to be dead, came back from the dead, uh, and uh, eventually was passed into law in a form that was, that was much broader, more sweeping than, than its initial introduction. Um, initially, uh, Representative Charlie Collins, Republican of Fayetteville, sponsored a bill that's been a pet project of his for many a year to allow... Uh, to allow concealed carry on college campuses. Uh, previously, it was up to the institution about whether they would allow that to happen on their on their campus, and Collins believes that uh, it should not be up to the institution, that it should be, um, that any public college or university should be uh, open ground for, for a concealed carry permit holder to, to carry a weapon. He said he, he believed in the ultimate local control and that, uh, that that decision should be left to the individual uh, concealed carry permit. Sovereign order. citizen business. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so in any case, uh, to skip all the all the tortures in between, the NRA ended up getting involved, um, and the bill that finally was signed into law by the governor not only allows for carry on college campuses, but also uh, in places like churches and bars uh, in uh, at the state capitol, uh, even in courthouses. Um, now, the, the but with some caveats, one being that, that uh, private property owners still can prevent anybody from carrying onto their property. So if a bar, for example, you know, posts, posts a sign clearly that says that on the outside, that's still off limits, theoretically. Um, also, uh, there's most significantly, in order to carry a weapon into one of these sensitive areas, you must have this sort of enhanced carry permit. So it's a, a sort of second special class of concealed carry permit. And that requires a secondary special training. Um, however, that training has not been developed, which is why the date today uh, really doesn't mean a whole lot because those permits are not available um, since the training isn't available. So the law, the law mandates the Arkansas State Police is going to be developing that training, and they will they will develop standards for the training, which then handgun instructors around the state will will put into practice. Uh, Colin said on, on Twitter th- today that he expects that by the beginning of 2018, not ja- not January 1st necessarily, but the first quarter of 2018, um, we should start to see those permits um, go into place. But the state police has 120 days to develop the program. Right, right. So basically four months to, to come up with the guidelines, standards that they want to require uh, trainers to implement. But, I mean, there are some restrictions in the legislation about 
that as well, it can't be more than, than eight hours of training, you know, so the state police can't say you need to take a week-long training course um, if, if that's what they, you know, wanted to do. So the, I guess the one worry is that regular citizens will see the laws in effect, not read farther or hear it on the news, not pay much more attention, and begin to, to carry, believing that there's no additional requirement. The confusion sure. that this, this brings about. Sure, sure. I mean, it's entirely possible, though. You know, I might note, note that a couple years ago or four years ago when the, 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 the tricky um, journey carry law uh, slipped through a ses- um, the legislative session, I think in 2013, um, that theoretically allowed for open carry anywhere in the state. And, you know, some people tested that out. I mean, There's a tremendous amount of confusion about that in practice. Um, it doesn't really come into play unless there's a crisis situation um, or unless a law enforcement officer is arresting somebody, something like that. So. Or you're working in Walmart or something and somebody's carrying a gun and it just freaks you out. Well, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, though with concealed carry, you know, it's, it's all the more likely you won't ever know. So, you know, I, yeah, I would not be surprised if people are this fall on college campuses are carrying weapons and may think that they're within their right to do so without ever getting that enhanced permit. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about our sponsor, 42 at the Clinton Center. We went to lunch today at 42 at the Clinton Center, and I, I thought it was quite delightful. We sat outside. <laughs> delightful is the word. It, uh, it, all weekend, I think it's supposed to be great weather. Today, it, it certainly was. We were able to watch the river go by. We were able to look at the, uh, the future parkland that the city owns and long for them to open up the gates so we can go exploring. Frolic. Frolic, yeah. Um, I had a, a menu staple that I hadn't tried before, the uh, the sesame noodle dish, and it was fantastic. I'm a big noodle fan, and this uh, stood up to any any available noodle in in uh, Arkansas. It's a um, it's a vegetarian um, dish, but you can add salmon or something else. Steak, I think. Steak for a couple bucks more. I did the salmon option, and it it was it was just. A home run. <laughs> 42 has uh, regular specials, including a burger of the day and usually a couple sandwich specials. You had the, the had trout. The, tr- the trout bon mi. Yeah. Uh, came with just came with chips. It was it was really solid. Um, yeah. Um, I, th- I mean, I, I, I love a good bon mi. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it I don't know if it conforms to traditional Vietnamese bon mi criteria, but um, it was it was great. That's all right. We can have a little fusion. Anyway, check them out. 42 at the Clinton Center. Um, they'll be open uh, this weekend for lunch. Moving on, a group of 10 state attorneys general, among them, of course, Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge, have threatened to sue the Trump administration if it doesn't end DACA. Um, they've They've given the White House a deadline of September 5th, which is next Tuesday, I believe. That's correct. So tell us, first, remind people what DACA is sure. and um, give, give us a little more background. of. Right, sure. So, so DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, it is a program that was implemented by the Obama administration uh, beginning in 2012. And this gets a little bit confusing because 
when you're talking about immigration status, things can get complicated. This isn't really a status, so it's not like um, citizenship or lawful permanent resident status or, or refugee status. Like those, are, those are different um, statuses that the federal government confers upon different classes of people present within its borders. Um, this is different because the folks that are eligible for DACA are themselves undocumented. Um, they were they the they're people who crossed over the U.S. border illegally with their parents um, at some point. Um, so. In order to qualify, you have to be a child. That's the childhood arrivals part when you came to the, to the United States. Um, you also have to have a clean criminal record, and you have to either have your GED or high school diploma or be working towards it. And there's some other age-based criteria in there, too, so not strictly everybody. That, I mean, you have to be, it, it essentially only applies to people that are um, younger than the age of 35, I believe. So. It's estimated there's about uh, 1.3 million people in the country that are potentially eligible for this. In Arkansas, the figures I've, I've heard are around 12,000, 15,000 or so, uh, though, though nobody knows for sure because, I mean, these folks are undocumented, so the numbers are by nature sort of, sort of hazy. Um, when this was first implemented by Obama, this was not controversial at all, you know, um, and it just really goes to show how far things have evolved politically or devolved. Um, it was it had widespread bipartisan support. It was not seen as controversial because these are very sympathetic kids for the most part. I mean, and the part about the criminal record, you know, I mean, these are people that, that have had, have not gotten in a lot of trouble with the law, have not done prison time or anything. Um, and most of them are, you know, quite well integrated into American society as well. I mean, the vast majority of DACA recipients speak English. Many of them are going to college. Many of them have families of their own, have careers. And what the what what this what what DACA does, what the program does, rather than than putting them on a path to citizenship or, or even green card status, it simply says uh, two things. One, uh, they're not going to get deported, so immigration officials aren't going to come and and detain them and, and ship them across the border. And two, they are um, able to work, so they're able to get a driver's license, which is a huge deal, you know, because you can't legally drive if you don't have a driver's license. Um, they are able to get a job. You know, I've, I've spoken to people who um, I spoke to, to, to one, one guy last spring in his 20s who graduated from the Arkansas School for Math and Sciences, uh, went on to get his bachelor's in physics at UCA, and is now working, which he would not be able to do legally if he didn't have this, you know, this DACA card. So, um, but things have changed, and, and now um, there, some conservatives are pushing for an end to the program. Um, and President Trump um, on the campaign trail in 2016, you know, talked a big game about ending it um, because, you know, immigration is, is sort of his cornerstone. But sort of fascinatingly, since taking office, he's, he's backed off of that. And he has said some things about how the, the Dreamers, is this group of young people who are often called, um, are, you know, they're good people, et cetera. And, and, and he also said that, that he has a family and he has grandchildren and he understands Right, he's well, a human being, he's, is he's, what he said. He's he's been saying a lot of things, and um, and and it has it has upset some uh, immigration hardliners, um, like uh, that see this as as a really core pledge uh, promise of his that he's that's going unfulfilled, and and really in a way, I mean, this is perhaps the single most significant important piece of action that he could take when it comes to immigration, um, as as a as the executive, you know. Without congressional, without congressional action, there's really nothing he could do that w that would be have a single sort of uh, larger uh, effect upon no. 
the undocumented immigrant world. I mean, he lent his support to the legal immigration curb that that uh, Senator Tom Cotton has proposed, but the consensus is that that has really no chance of going anywhere. Sure, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric around immigration, but and, and really to put any of this in context, you have to you have to step back and think a little bit about the legislative landscape. I mean. When DACA was first implemented, it was back when we were talking about comprehensive immigration reform in a serious way. So a, a bill that would be passed by Congress that would do something about the larger problem of 13 million estimated undocumented people living in the United States without papers, um, and you know develop a means for them to, to get a you know a, a pathway towards citizenship if they met strict criteria. Um, but uh, that never happened, you know. And any, yeah, as you say, that the Cotton's legislation, um, which would call for stricter immigration standards, uh, reduction of legal immigration. I mean, that seems likely to go nowhere too. So, um, so the reason why Obama created that program originally was as a sort of stopgap measure on the way to to some sort of more substantive action by Congress, which never materialized. Well, later on in Obama's presidency, he attempted to expand that program, and it became clear that Congress wasn't going to act, and he created uh, an expansion that would have extended it to certain adults as well, um, not people who arrived as adults rather than just children. That, that riled up a lot of conservative attorneys general and, and, and governors, and they sued, and a federal judge in Texas ended up blocking that, that expansion of the Obama program. So that is relevant because the, what's being threatened right now is another lawsuit. So the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, joined by Leslie Rutledge and a few other states, are saying if Trump doesn't act to end DACA, we're going to sue again. And it would go back to that the same judge in Texas who would seem likely to rule against the original DACA as well. And politically, I mean, this would be bad for Trump because his hand would be forced in a way that would make him look weak. And um, so the conventional, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that he's going to, he's going to either, he's going to end the program as we know it, at least, perhaps scale it back or, or, or phase it out. But it seems likely that Tuesday, which is when he, he's going to announce his decision, we'll be seeing um, DACA ending in some form or fashion. What's been the response from Arkansas leaders. Uh, we saw a statement from Bishop Taylor of the Catholic Church. Uh, some mayors have joined together to speak out against it. Anyone else? Um, yeah, so I've been speaking to uh, the Arkansas United Community Coalition, which has been organizing around this. They're an immigrants' rights advocacy group. Um, and uh, and it, the mayors of Fayetteville and Springdale were, were fairly early to jump on this petition, uh, Mayor Mark Sotola in Little Rock, I'm um, happy to say, has now also joined the petition as well as the uh, Mayor of Pine Bluff in Fort Smith, um, the, the Chancellor at the U, U of A Fayetteville, a uh, handful of other um, higher, higher education institutions, uh, some state legislators, um, and uh, AUCC also had some some of their organizers and, and some, some folks benefiting from DACA, some young people meet successfully with the AG and the governor today to talk to them about uh, their stories. Um, also, and this just happened a couple hours ago, the state of Tennessee announced that it was withdrawing from the lawsuit. So now there are only wow. nine states uh, that are a part of that lawsuit. And, you know, is it is it thinkable that Arkansas could 
decline to be a part of the lawsuit as well. It's not impossible, though it seems highly unlikely, given um, Attorney General Rutledge's closeness to the Trump administration. Right. And as we've written about quite a bit and we discussed last week in the podcast, she seems almost solely focused on out-of-state lawsuits that right. are politically motivated. She's the head of the Republican Attorney General's Association. Right. Um, Although, you know, actually, I'm, I'm going to backpedal on what I just said a, a, just a second and note that she has, I mean, she is, I mean, very close to Trump, the Trump administration itself. You know, she's served as a, uh, a mouthpiece for it, you know, on, on uh, national media. So, you know, I guess there's a, a sort of larger, broader question of like, well, yes, Leslie Rutledge, it seems to me, is clearly more interested in the sort of larger national agenda but is she more interested in Trump's agenda or the conservative agenda, which is not always 100% the same thing? Yeah. Okay, well, let's leave it there and, and move on to our third topic, uh, the Arkansas Nonprofit News Network, which is a uh, journalism project that I started on the side of my work at the Times. Nice job, by the way. Thanks. That uh, Benji contributes to regularly. Um, published a two-part story uh, this or two-part series this week on uh, juvenile uh, isolation, uh, isolation in juvenile treatment facilities, uh, which is the official name for um, for places where we as a state can find young people. And just a little bit of background, and feel free to, to jump in at okay. any point. Some context: uh, the there are eight of these juvenile treatment facilities in the state. Uh, until late last year, um, they all, except for the facility in, in Alexander, the um, Arkansas Juvenile Assessment and Treatment Center, were were managed by several nonprofit providers, local nonprofit providers, and had been for years. The the state wanted to bid uh, those out to a out of state provider. Some local legislators stopped the contract, and the state was forced to take over operation of those facilities earlier this year. So you have that going on on one hand. Meanwhile, the national trend in juvenile justice is, and and all of the research that I've seen, is that confining young people um, who commit a, a wide variety of offenses, some, some violent, some um, not at all, is bad that it it uh, you know leads kids more likely to um, adult incarceration. It's something that's hard to recover for. It's bad for them psychologically. It's bad for them educationally. And so there've been big moves in in other states, including surrounding states, to to dramatically move away from that. The department, the Division of Youth Services, which is a part of the uh, Department of Human Services, has long had that move as one of its its stated goals, but there's not been any political will to, to do that. Um, of course, it would be a big, big deal to do it. Right. So that that's a little bit of the big picture. And, and, and the, you know, the idea here is that we would not just be doing nothing with these with these kids. We would be placing them in programs that would be more that that are more based in their community, for one thing, right. closer to home. Um, uh, less reliant on on institutional confinement in general, you know, be that uh, an ankle bracelet, uh, be that some sort of um, group home uh, setting, um, or uh, you know, other community based 
uh, alternatives. Right. I mean, despite the, the juvenile treatment facility, a number of these facilities feel very much like kid jail. Mm-hmm. I mean, some have a, yeah. a a group home sense to them. But anyway, so the, but that's just some background. This, these stories are about the use of isolation in uh, in two facilities, in particular, the one that is near Alexander, which is kind of on the edge of Pulaski and Saline counties, um, the Arkansas Juvenile Assessment and Treatment Center, which is uh, is. It's where like the the most. Well, it's 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 a couple of different things. It's it's both the intake facility for the whole system. So if you get committed or remanded to DYS custody, you, you go start there. there. Yeah, um, and then y- yes, I believe that you know the most serious offenders um, they say are the West Side shooters, for instance, were at Alexander. Sure. Bef- when they were young. Right. Though I should say I'm not sure. What are the are the criteria are for that as well, and some of it has to do with geographic proximity as well. Right. Um, so, anyway, it, it's managed by uh, a an out of state company, for profit company called Rite of Passage, and we, the Arkansas Nonprofit News Network, reported uh, was it earlier this year or last year on earlier this year uh, a, a guard who um, put his hands around the throat of a 15-year-old inmate. Um, the, and that was captured on video. The first part of this series that, that David Ramsey wrote uh, is about the isolation, uh, the use of isolation in the Alexander facility. And the second part is about the use of isolation in other facilities, especially one in Dermot. Um, it's the uh, Dermot Juvenile Correctional Facility. And, um, I mean, there's some pretty striking um, narratives in, in, in each of these stories about treatment of, of youths. Um, I think most of the kids we're talking about are around 15. Right. Uh, who have been placed in, in isolation. And there's a big debate over terminology here, but uh-huh. they've been segregated from their peers and from largely from staff in bare rooms with nothing to do often in the dark um, so there's there's some real stark visuals and stories that go with that as one critic says you know if if you knew that your neighbor um, was putting um, her kid in a closet for hours at end for misbehaving what would you do you probably call child abuse hotline, yet this has gone on in some of our facilities. So there's there's that part of it, but um, a sort of interesting part is the the um, internal policy of both the providers and the Division of Youth Services, which oversees all these these facilities. Right. Yeah. So that when we say when we say isolation or in the story. Uh, Dave also uses the term room confinement oftentimes. Um, you know, you have to kind of put it in the context of, of what these facilities are, are, are like. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be providing services to the kids in their care. I mean, they're supposed, they are supposed to be treatment centers. They're supposed to be rehabilitative. They're not, you know, just 
punitive. Right. And um, and that that's a it's an interesting thing about juvenile sentences is they are not time based. They're based on treatment. So you have to complete a treatment plan to to right be to released. Be released. Um, and it's yeah it's. I, I should min- I want to mention I, I paid a visit to this facility up in Mansfield uh, about a month or two ago, which um, I mean on my visit I mean I, I have to in, in fairness did not seem like a, a jail it was a, yeah. a well kept facility I mean they were expecting visitors that day so it was family day it was family day um, but uh, it also you know it seemed it seemed like uh, just from my the few hours I spent there like a like a, a well staffed you know clean fairly healthy seeming environment and they don't they they don't have single cell rooms there also where they can lock a, a child up as they do at a couple of these other places but um there was a girl there who was um her family was visiting and, and the staff told me that they were sort of going to surprise her by telling her she get she got to go home that day you know so in other words i mean there's there's that much sort of latitude in determining like the uh the the terms of the of the the child's release and um, you know, it's not totally arbitrary. She had completed the terms of their, the plan. She knew she was going to be released the next, in the, sometime in the, in the coming weeks. But still, I mean, it goes to show this: the the, the management of these facilities is a, is a great deal of latitude in, in how they, how long they're holding the youth there, and so on. And so, you know, as far as the use of isolation goes, I mean. It, these aren't supposed to be places where kids are locked up in cells. I mean, right. that's not the way it's supposed to function. It's supposed to be places where they go to class, where they receive therapy, where they socialize with one another. I mean, under um, you know close supervision by adults, but nonetheless, I mean, you're not putting them in a cell, um, which is what we find out does apparently happen sometimes as punishment. Yeah. And one of the things that Dave revealed is that the Division of Youth Services, which again is the agency that's that's monitoring uh, all these facilities and, and because of the state takeover is running a number of them, including the Mansfield facility that Benji just mentioned, uh, has a policy that it hasn't put into effect, that it hasn't promulgated. Um, it's because of our reporting, um, almost certainly, they've now said you have to follow the draft policy even if they haven't officially promulgated it, which is a very, like it's a sort of curious bureaucratic thing that I don't quite understand like what the difference in hey follow this and our policy is officially promulgated is mm-hmm. but um, you have that on one hand and then we discovered that that rite of passage um, also um, you know was not exactly adhering to the, the, the DYS or some other standards that it um, was uh, said it was following uh, and you know we should say that this is is a it's a it's a population that's probably difficult to deal with. Um, you know, sometimes. Um, well, there are situations where it it absolutely would make sense right. to put a kid alone in a room. You know, if a kid is being violent. You know, if they're threatening to kill themselves, and and if they're lashing out at staff. Um, and uh, you know, placing them in a room, locking the room. I mean, it makes sense. And there's and and some in these standards, it allows for that. I mean, even the folks that Dave talked to, this national group called Stop Solitary for Kids, I think would acknowledge like for the the safety, well-being of of, of a youth, there are times and when, others. Yeah. So that's not really what we're talking about right. here. I mean, we're talking about a punitive measure. Right. Yeah. So so we have an example of a. a 
a child who refused to cut his hair and he said that that led to him being segregated and he was stuck in a cell um, I don't know if it was him or an, another child stuck in a cell for hours on end and had to pee in his dinner tray. I think those were the same kid, but separate incidents. Right. Yeah. And um, and the folks that run the facility dispute whether or not they would that punishment that punishment would be used for refusing a haircut. Um, but they also refuse to comment on any specifics. And in general, it's very hard as as with a lot of these issues around the system, it's hard to, to know what's going on in there because there's almost no data. I mean, there, there, there's That's the a records big thing. are not well kept. Yeah, and I should say that uh, this takeover happened, but the governor announced last month that the state was going to put all these facilities out to bid again. So um, the same sort of issues that we see with this rite of passage group could pop up again. This is a topic that we plan on covering for the... Uh, for the long term, we're gonna we're we're in it for the the long haul at the Arkansas Nonprofit News Network. So stay tuned, and if you have any story tips or ideas, give us a shout. Let's move on now to endorsements. I know that you have some things that you're excited to talk about. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I can go first if you want to formulate. Go here. for it. Okay, I want to go through a, a few things. So, uh, not that this especially needs an endorsement for me because it's been a huge bestseller. Uh, another thing we talked about at launch is the new David Grand book, The Killers of the Flower Moon. Benji had a few problems with uh, with the writing in places, but we both agree that it is a reporting triumph. Uh, it's uh, a sort of historical, I mean, true crime, I think you could call it. I mean, it's very pulpy and easy to read um, by David Grand, the, the longtime New Yorker writer. Um, it's actually I saw being made into a movie uh-huh. uh, with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, it's about the Osage tribe in Oklahoma in the turn of the 20th century, right? Yeah, I'd say 1920s. I think, I think, I think 1920s. Um, who, you know, like many tribes, were were pushed um, into just like the 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 least um, desire the the most undesirable patch of land gradually and it just happened to be on top of a massive oil reserve and so right. for a time the Osage uh, per capita were the wealthiest people in the world or close to it right. and had manservants and limos and multiple houses and um, and yet at the same time were denied basic rights right. and, and, and were assigned, in many cases deemed to be uh, essentially mentally unfit to handle their own wealth and were assigned um, white handlers to help make spending decisions for them. Yeah, so there's there's that, you know, racist dynamic at play, uh, white supremacist dynamic going, but also there uh, is a um, conspiracy to murder uh, many of these these tribes people um, to to take their money essentially, um, and this coincides with the the creation of the FBI and um, J Edgar Hoover's rise, and it's just there's a, it's a really fascinating story that has a lot of um, interesting narrative threads. Encourage everyone to read it, um, and then I've. Quick music things. 
The uh, new LCD sound system record, American Dream, that came out today is fantastic. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That happened? Yeah, you should listen to it. I've been listening to it all day. It's going to be good Labor Day music. I think it's probably when you listen to the lyrics, it's sort of sad middle-aged music, but the the uh, sonics of it are really fun and pump up. Also, we, we talked about this briefly in the office today, the, the new album from Tyler, the Creator, who's sort of infamous, um, came out of the Odd Future group, um, was infamous for being super bigoted and making lots of homophobic slurs. Um, and, you know, his the, the Odd Future group has um, kind of emerged to have a number of kind of queer members, including Frank Ocean and Sid uh, of the Internet. Um, this new album is really fun and uh, interesting in terms of production, and I think the ROMs are better than stuff. And there are also lots of references to his sexuality and, and that he is gay. Uh, there's debate online of whether he's trolling or this is some weird meta joke or if actually he's been gay all along. Anyway, it's it's worth listening to, I think, for all those reasons. Finally, and this is by I'm far... I'm really glad we're hitting the Tyler, the Creator, um, uh, juvenile justice yeah, uh, policy, I'm, that crucial part of the Venn diagram of the y- listenership. No doubt. Uh, somebody that I've written about from time to time over the years is a literate-born um, mix maker who now lives in Portland. Um, I think the RIAA is far less litigious than it once was, but because what he's doing is not officially um, adhering to copyright law, we don't use his name, but he has a, a website called musicophilia.wordpress.com where all of his mixes are. But he sent me an advance of uh, a new mix that he's made that is going to be many vol or it is many volumes of the music of 1979. I assume it's post-punk or punk um, he did a 1981 mix that's legendary that got written up all over the place and has uh, all these adoring fans among music critics and nerds all over. So stay tuned for that. I bet it'll be out pretty soon. We'll we'll blog about it. Hmm. What do you have, Benji? Oh, well, um, I guess I'm thinking of some, some albums I've, I've enjoyed recently. Um, it seems like there's a lot of um, great rock albums um, just tr- trickled out recently. Yeah. Uh, I've listened to the new War on Drugs album, which is getting a lot of love from critics. Some real uh, Heartland rock there. Yeah, super Heartland. Um, it's super, I think, also headphonesy, which I don't typically listen to music like that, like, you know, sitting down, eyes closed, really uh, focusing on the intricacies of the production. But uh, I think, you know, I think it also just works as, um, as, as sort of... Roll the windows down. Roll the windows down, rock and roll. Um it, and War on Drugs is uh, Kurt Vile's former band. Um, he's a favorite of mine, but uh, I think you know they've really emerged to be a. They're not doing anything that I would describe as like. Um, to me, it's not like cut, super cutting edge, super innovative, but um, it just works. You know, it's it's and it's not trying too hard. Yeah. Um, I'm also enjoying the new Queens of the Stone Age album, which. Um, it's a band I have always unabashedly enjoyed. Yeah, it's a good band. Good, good rock and roll yeah, band. Yeah, good rock and roll. I, I um, 
<laughs> I had this Queen of the, Queens of the Stone Age CD that I, I never played much until this brief period of my life when I was a delivery driver for a Chinese restaurant. And I found that being a delivery driver and really blasting Queens of the Stone Age just like went together like peanut butter and jelly. Wow. Um, let me see. Any other endorsements? Um, I guess, um, you know, I, I don't want... I. I feel like I feel like we should mention something about about Hurricane Harvey since um, that's been really the news that's dominated the week. A little bit weird, you know. Makes you think like be, being a state centric um, outlet. You know, there's this massive you know um, once in a hundred year event or a thousand year event. Some are saying happening just to the south of us, but there's not really a lot we can <laughs> we can say about it in a way that you know because it's a national story and and. And it's not touching our state in a really direct way, but um, I, you know, see so many people online looking for stuff to, to donate to, looking for things to, and there's a big sort of conversation about about where to send those donations. Um, I think one of the things that people are saying, which is good advice, is uh, be wary. Obviously, be wary of scams, but also be wary of just like of organizations like the Red Cross, which uh, do good work in their own right, but. Um, oftentimes are really not the right people to be giving money to if you're trying to focus on these longer-term relief efforts. Um, yeah, and, and NPR and ProPublica have done some some good work on Red Cross and, and Katrina. Right, and in Haiti and in Sandy. And <laughs> uh, the, the, the story there, I, th- I think if you're, if you're being generous to them, is, is in part that they're this big money-making and fundraising machine that... Um, people know and give money to and they're just not equipped to do rebuilding work you know yeah. they're equipped to hand out hand out blankets and at emergency shelters and um and but you know they're not going to turn down the donations and so you get this you know this mismanagement as a result so i think the new york times if you go online and google it has uh, a, a good comprehensive not comprehensive but like a good list of, of different types of organizations so there's a hurricane Harvey relief fund various uh, organizations that are focused on individual groups, um, immigrants, say, or uh, LGBT people, or, or, or not, are just general general needs. Um, and um, you know, I guess my my point is just be careful out there. Yeah, definitely. Okay, thanks for joining us today, Benji, and thank you all for listening. Go to Forty Two and check it out, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Give us a rating and review. It helps people find us. And you should also just tell your friends. That's a good old-fashioned way of helping people find us. Thanks. I'll be back next week, maybe with somebody new. What?